Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at Exeter University here in the United Kingdom, and today we're talking to Jeremy about his excellent new book, George III, Majesty and Madness, just published by Alan Lane 2020. Jeremy, congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Many thanks indeed. Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us something about yourself? Right. Uh, well, I'm actually just retired. Um, I um, grew up in London. I went to university as an undergraduate at Cambridge, postgraduate at Oxford. I was appointed to the University of Durham as a lecturer, as the lecturer, I should say, in early modern European history in 1980. I was promoted there to senior lecturer, reader, and eventually in 1994, uh, what the Americans would call a full professor. I moved essentially because I didn't want to spend my entire working career in the same place to Exeter in 1996, becoming the established, i.e. senior chair. And I held that post till I retired this January. Now, that all just sounds as though it's just a list of places. That just provides the geographical context. The actual thing about myself is that I've got a strong work ethic. I have wide-ranging intellectual habits and interests. And I'm a bit of a iconoclastic contrarian. In other words, if I see an established viewpoint, and if I think it is weak and flawed, I'm happy to say that. Um, I am personally fairly conservative by British standards, which by American standards means literally middle of the road. Um, but um, the, uh, that means, again, that puts me at variance with what I would say is the dominant nature of the profession, which in Britain is very much a sort of um, left, left, left wing. And obviously lots of that is reflected in your new book, George III, Majesty and Madness. Can I ask you, as we begin to, to think about the, the new book, the Alan Lane book just published, how does this uh, book compare to the bigger biography of George III that you published um, 2006, 2007? Yeah, well, the big, they're each for very different series. The Yale series is intended to be, I actually don't think such a book can exist, but it's intended to be as close as they can get to being definitive. I don't believe you can have a definitive interpretation, of course. It drips with footnotes. It very, very, um, it's literally a heavyweight. <laughs> you know, dropped at any height, it would kill, kill you on the ground. <laughs> um, the new book, um, the new book is comes in a series of 30,000 worders which are intended to be succinct um, and which by the very nature of the length are more, uh, um, as it were, focusing on particular characteristics. So anybody can pick an easy thing of what have I left out and there would be things that I have chosen to leave out because I think they're more important if you're doing a King and Times which is really the Yale series than if you're dealing with as it were an individual which is more I think the Alan Lane series mm. um, Now most of us know about George III through the lens of entertaining Republican propaganda like Hamilton um, How accurate are these representations of America's last king? Well, they're certainly not accurate. I mean, they're accurate in the sense that they provide a, a rendition of an established caricature. So they're accurate in that sense and, in fact, completely unoriginal. It would have been much more original if Hamilton had tried to present him as he was, uh, somebody who, from the American perspective, 
um, was a sort of humane and intelligent man who, from the American perspective, made the wrong choices. But as you know, I mean, you see this endlessly in series. I mean, you know, think about, for example, the West Wing or Borgen or whatever. There is this absolute laziness that script writers have, and maybe it's the laziness of the public, I don't know, which is they take a cause they believe in, and that therefore the person who represents that cause has to be the more benign one, while conversely, the person who doesn't represent that cause has to be malign. Not only is that often inaccurate, it's also extremely lazy. So I think the audience is applauding Hamilton and the script writers. I mean, personally, I don't care, but I think they're just being lazy and stupid. Well, can you tell us something about George's family background, Jeremy? Um, well, obviously, he comes from the Anglo-Hanoverian royal family. He is the oldest son in a system which is that of hereditary uh, male um, monarchy. Um, his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, dies when he's still relatively young. George III is born in 1738. Uh, Frederick dies in 1751. His mother, Augusta, a princess goes, survives and goes on to be, uh, as it were, the king mother for a brief, not that they use that term, uh, for a brief period of time. Um, uh, but as a sort of family background, he comes from what one could fairly say was not the happiest of family backgrounds. His father had had terrible relations with his father, George II. George II, who in some respect, I've also written a biography of George II, as you may know. George II tries to do the best as he can, but by his own lights, um, but uh, and tries to be friendly to the new prince and his mother, in other words, George II's daughter-in-law, but that relationship breaks down, and I think it's fair to say that George III, as a young man before he becomes king, is not the happiest of individuals. I mean, his happiness essentially comes not from ascending to the throne, but from his fairly rapid marriage soon after uh, to Charlotte, um, a, a, a princess from a minor German ruling family, and for many, many years, I mean, the difficulties come later in life, but for many years they form a very happy uh, union and unusually what one would call uxorious. I think that's the phrase that's used. In other words, they seem to have a genuine passion for each other. They have lots of children. And um, George III is relatively unusual among uh, monarchs of that period. I say relatively unusual. You can find others uh, of that type in that um, he doesn't play the field. Mm. And George is coming to power very much as the Jacobite threat is receding, isn't it? How important is he in efforts to normalise the Hanoverian monarchy? W was he a popular king? Oh, that's an excellent question. Well, um, George III comes to the throne in 1760, and as you say, the I mean, Jacobitism, Bonnie Prince Charlie defeated at Culloden in 1746. The last major Jacobite, um, pro-French Jacobite invasion attempt is 1759. And George III is unusual in that his parents, sorry, his predecessors, and in fact his father as well, but more particularly his predecessors, G1 and G2, had very much thought in, in the political terms defined for them in many respects by the Whigs. Now his father, Frederick Prince of Wales, had tried to move away from that, but had died too early. And George III very much takes on board the kind of country party idea, idea 
which is that one should be a monarch for all. And what that means in particular is trying to take um, on board and into uh, the system those people who had been excluded earlier because they were Tories. And George III is, you know, makes an attempt, and he doesn't always find it easy, but he makes an attempt to be a, um, a monarch for all. As far as your question about is he popular, well, that's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, you can easily draw attention to criticism of him, both in Britain and in the United States. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that is a sort of fairly standard view. But what is very striking, if you read accounts of the king's travels, um, for example, to Portsmouth in the early 1770s, um, around the country in the late 1770s as Britain is involved in war, um, and again then in the late 1780s, which are the early 1790s, those are the principal periods he travels outside London. What is striking is the mass scenes of enthusiasm that greet him, and you know I've written about that in, in the book, in both books. And um, I think that doesn't match the sort of conception that a lot of people would like to have had. Um, and, you know, the, the fashionable idea was that George was, you know, an unpopular and bad king. Um, and it's very clear that not, a lot of people didn't see him in that light. I mean, you know, if you've got Joshua Reynolds commenting on George's return from the review of the fleet in 1773, and, you know, that itself is a popular thing to do. I mean, you know, the king is exceeding delighted with his reception at Portsmouth. He said to a person about that he was convinced he was not as, so unpopular as the newspapers would represent him to be. The acclamations of the people were indeed prestigious. On his return, all the country assembled in the towns where he changed horses. At Godalming, every man had a branch of a tree in his hand and every woman a nosegay, which they that's a sort of flowers, which they presented to the king, the horses moving as slow as possible, till he was up to the knees in flowers and they all singing in a tumultuous manner, God save the king. The king was so affected that he couldn't refrain shedding abundance of tears and even joined in the chorus. Well, you know, that's a slightly different account to the one that you might gauge if you read quite a lot of the academics working on the period. Um, and, you know, one can go on and on. I mean, there are many similar. So a lot of people saw the, uh, the king as a figure who was essentially popular, doing his best, trying to, um, trying to sort of, you know, keep the country together. I mean, all this is, for example, comes from 1788, so it's another 15 years earlier, later, sorry, um, when he's visiting uh, the West Midlands. Um, he and his company were received amidst the acclamations of some thousands of all ranks. After dinner, the royal guests, desirous of satisfying as much as in their power the wish they had excited, appear at the windows, where they continued for some time expressing by their looks and gestures the happiness they experienced and the evident and almost incessant marks of loyalty and affection shown them by thousands of their surrounding subjects. And it's worth bearing in mind that um, his two predecessors, G1 and G2, had travelled far less in England. I mean, G3 still didn't travel as much as later monarchs were to do. And, I mean, you know, for many people, this is the only time in their life they literally ever saw a monarch. Hmm. That that description of George entering Godalming is very much like the description of Christ entering Jerusalem, isn't it? Um, with, you know, all the hosannas and the, the, the palm branches being strewn in the ground. 
you describe somewhere in the book, I think towards the end, you describe George as the closest thing we in these islands have had to a clerical king. What kinds of interest did George have in religion and how did he respond, for example, to Catholicism or Protestant descent? Well, let's start with his interest in religion. He was personally extraordinarily devout. devout. I mean, he made the, um, uh, you know, I, there's a whole chapter in the big book on George the Third, George and religion. Um, he, um, you know, took a very active role in the religious services. Uh, he personally liked um, clerics who he thought were up to the job. He took a lo- long interest in appointing to the um, to senior clerical posts. He didn't allow them to be sort of manipulated for political purposes. And some clerics, Bishop Hurd, for example, were friends of his. Um, the um, he liked reading books of sermons. The, you know, there's an account of him meeting Dr. Johnson and them discussing their favourite books. And Dr. Johnson, I mean, you know, and the King, I mean, shock horror for those listening who like to be members of sort of reading novels about themselves. Uh, George, or, or the wishing to be uh, themselves, George III and Dr. Johnson decided that actually they didn't really think much of fiction novels, but they were really keen on 17th century books of sermons, um, but classically by um, Anglican heavyweights. Um, George III's views on Catholicism and Protestant descent. Well, let's start with Catholicism. Um, George III personally got on with Catholics. He stayed with Catholics when he uh, travelled the country in 1778, um, trying to, you know, bolster um, sort of the national morale, as it were, in the crisis. Uh, he took the view, though, that under his coronation oath, that he had. Uh, sworn to protect the position of the established church, which, of course, in England is the Church of England, and that that meant that there could not be full civil liberties for Catholics. And he very much took that view, and that helped to cause political crises, of course, um, with the fall of the um, first younger pit ministry and then with the problems with the so-called Ministry of All Talents. Um, on, pro- on non-conformists, I think it's fair to say that George III was not overwhelmed by Protestant nonconformists, but then Protestant nonconformists, or some of their leading advocates, were the people who were most prominent, I think it's fair to say, within Britain in support for first the um, American Revolution and subsequently the French Revolution. So I think it's fair to say that the king was not the leading exponent of, of, of uh, a sort of a different attitude towards Protestant nonconformity, but um, you know, no, he was a he was a religious man. I think it's worth bearing in mind his grandfather George II, um, whilst not as personally religiously devout or energetic as George III, also has to be seen as a Protestant king, uh, a king in his case more, I would say, linked to. North German pietism, which was a movement, of course, you know, George the Second, um, born in 1683. Um, he, in his early, he, you know, he doesn't come to England till the till the family accedes to the throne in 1714. So he, you know, he very much grows up under the influence of North German uh, Lutheranism and under the tensions there and developments there uh, within a kind of more pietistical Lutheranism. So I think I would say that George the George the Third is a different form of Protestant 
to his grandfather and a more ardent one, but that, that, you know, one would be making a mistake if one underrates the significance of religion um, in the politics of that period. And as your answer um, just hinted, uh, George reigned through a period of several revolutions, didn't he? Uh, an American revolution, often thought of as a, a revolution of dissenters, French Revolution, the prospect of revolution in his Irish kingdom. How, how stable was his king, was his reign and how did he deal with these political threats? Uh, well, again, that's two very different questions. And of course, we could have an entire program on both of them. Let's just start with stability. Well, as you correctly say, if you lose uh, your largest colonies, um, and that you then also face in, as you said, in 1798, a rising in Ireland. I mean, stability is not necessarily the, the high point of your conclusion, but we can turn that on its head and point out to the ability of government to go on winning general elections in Britain during these, this period, 1780, the 84 elections being classic ones, because those were mere moments of high political drama. And, you know, what is striking about the French Revolutionary Crisis is that, yes, there is radicalism, but that the majority of the... Um, of the public, you know, sticks to um, the system. And, you know, you have ultimately in both those crises the stability of the country against the prospect of invasion. And remember, you might say, what invasion, American Revolution? You remember 1779, there's a Franco-Spanish invasion attempt plan on, you know, as part of that broadened out war. And then, of course, there are uh, subsequent invasion plans or attempts during the French Revolution and Napoleonic crisis, and ultimately, apart from the navy, um, as far as on land is concerned, the state relies substantially on massive militia volunteer forces, and you know that I think is the ultimate uh, you know point that large numbers of people were willing to fight for their king and to give their life if necessary. And the obvious corollary, and I don't wish to irritate listeners, but then I think in the present world too many people are, are, are happy to be too readily irritated. The obvious corollary is 1916, that far, far more Irish Catholics fought for uh, the King Emperor George V on the Western Front as volunteers than ever rose in rebellion in the Easter Rising. But on the other hand, because of the rather perverse way in which the past is studied, the latter appear to be more consequential. Mm. And indeed, some of those who were volunteers, both in the Irish and Ulster volunteers, fought at the Somme as well, didn't they? Uh, in, in, in the indeed service of the Emperor. Yes. Um, can we talk a little bit, Jeremy, about George's mental health? Obviously, the theme of mental illness resonates through popular presentations of especially the latter part of his reign. How important is that, or how important was that, in his uh, political activity at that time and in the way in which he's been fashioned since? Right, well, that's, that's again, very interesting. I mean, I think it's fair to say there's been a, a sort of... I mean, obviously, George III could not be put on the psychiatrist's chair, to use the Anthony Clare phrase, um, I think it's fair to say there has been a bit of a shift in interpretation in recent years, um, uh, with less of an emphasis than prior on Porphyria and more of an emphasis on a kind of um, slightly manic personality. Um, as far as your question about its influence on his politics, I mean, he was born in 1738, his first significant bout of ill health is 1788, so that's the age of uh, 50, 
And I think it's fair to say that his health prior to that was very good. I mean, he was, and indeed he remained, a physically fit man. He took a lot of exercise, both walking, he was a very keen walker, and also riding. He went on riding uh, into his 60s. Uh, he didn't eat too much, um, and obviously we've already mentioned his personal health. He wasn't a, uh, I mean, for example, he didn't, he didn't contact venereal disease. I mean, he, you know, the kind of things that did for people in that period, many of which were lifestyle choices, uh, George III was, um, you know, was, was very cautious about, um, in, you know, very cautious about what he ate, uh, very cautious about what he drank, very cautious about the hours he kept. Um, in fact, one of the reasons he was unpopular in the rather raffish circles around some of the uh, Whig aristocrats uh, was precisely that he was seen as a sort of kind of petty bourgeois uh, figure. Now, um, after the 1788-1789 episode, the next bout of, bouts of ill health are in the 1800s. Um, both of those, both of the initial ones are less serious than the 1788 to 1889 one, but then at the end of the decade, um, he becomes much more unwell, and as you know, he spends the uh, 18-teens in twilight, uh, as it were, uh, and uh, in uh, a regency occurs first uh, for just one year in case the king will, will recover, but then uh, a permanent one. But you know, by the, by the standards of dynastic monarchy, this isn't bad. I mean, in other words, um, he, you know, as I said, he's born in 1738. He's a very long-lived king, and he maintains himself in a very good position until um, the end of the 1800s. And I, you know, if you put it in comparative terms um, of that era, um, a he manages, and b the British state manages, and the combination of the two is very significant. One of the really charming things about the book, Jeremy, is the inclusion of, I'm not sure how many pages here, it must be about a dozen pages of, of uh, colour plates. And we have, of course, um, you know, some uh, lovely images of sculpture, of official portraiture, but lots of cartoons as well. Do we, do we have any knowledge, uh, I'm not sure you cover this in the book, but do, do, you have any, do we have any knowledge of how George felt about his representation in popular visual texts like these? Um... Well, there's several things to say about this. Um, the yes, there are, the illustrations are fantastic, and the the ones that are in colour, it's because these were hand coloured, and they I think provide a genuine work of popular art for that period, because obviously they can be engraved. As far as George the Third is concerned, he personally um, was more was more affected in the 1760s by um, the discussion of him in some of the press, and in particular the suggestion that his mother had, in effect, had an affair with his leading minister, um, the Earl of Butte, uh, allegations which were without foundation. Um, but, and, you know, that was part, he was a young man at the time. He was, you know, overly convinced, as the young are with their enthusiasms, that because he wished to be a king above faction, that therefore he should be seen in that light. Um, and he, I think it's fair to say he found it difficult to accept initially that he wouldn't be. Um, but by the end of the 1760s, he's quite used to the idea that he will be routinely abused by, uh, by people as part of the small change of politics and in a sense he becomes much less interested in this criticism. Mm. 
Well, this is now the second book you've written on George III. Do you like him? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that if I'd had the opportunity, I often judge historical characters by would I have liked to have sat down next to them at dinner and had a chat and listened to them. And so, for example, I, I think I would very much like to have had a chat with Dr. Johnson. Um, uh, I would have uh, been all listen rather than all talk. Um, but uh, I, I very, and you know, other people of the, thick, of the period, I think Smollett, uh, the, uh, Stern, I would both have been, you know, the novelists, I would both have been fascinated by. Of the monarchs, I think George III would easily have been the most interesting to talk uh, with. Um, he's, he was a man of enormous wide-ranging interests, uh, very, very concerned about music, of course, both as a performer and as a listener, fascinated with science, uh, fascinated with astronomy, because he had a planet named after him. Uh, he personally, out of his own money, helped to sponsor Captain Cook's uh, voyages. Um, he was very interested in geography. He was very interested in history. He was knowledgeable about both. Um, he was a man who lacked uh, personal arrogance. Um, he, um, uh, for example, you know, he took the view that um, it was only through act of parliament that the Hanoverians were on the throne, and uh, he was very cautious about any critical remarks about the Jacobites. In the end, as you probably know, he granted a pension and annual payment to Henry IX of England, the claimant, uh, Charles, Charles Edward's younger brother, Cardinal, Cardinal York. Um, and I think he comes across as an extremely humane man. Uh, he made uh, mistakes, and I try to discuss those, and obviously you refer to both books, and I think it's fair to say that I get more space, but you know, I've written also on other areas. But I think instinctively he had um, reasonable and correct attitudes to do with the continuity between the generations, to do with the value and respect for law, to do with the way in which political organizations ought to be grounded in constitutionalism towards um, the notion that a respect between individuals was important to how society worked and towards a sort of a fair and fine sense of national identity and national stability and national security. So yes, I think he was a very great king. I think that you should not therefore be surprised that the uh, as to the abuse he has been coated with, because um, he obviously stood personally for it with a set of values which has found favour among singularly few historians. But uh, I think that's a comment on them rather than on the king. Mm. And I think towards the end of the book, you compare him, of all modern royals, most closely with Prince Charles. Well, I compare, I compare him to both Prince Charles, but even more to the present queen, Elizabeth II, I mean, George has a very strong, just sorry, George had a very strong religious uh, sense of duty. And in fact, his sense of duty was one of the clearest things about him. That's one of the things he loathed about his eldest son, the future George IV. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that is the overwhelming characteristic of the present monarch. 
But at the same time, he did have some of the interests of Prince Charles. I mean, both men very interested in, for example, architecture. George III fascinated in archi- with architecture. Both men in their own ways um, interested in a kind of relationship between um, the outdoor world, um, sort of personal fitness, a whole set of um, kind of values which are not those of, shall we say, urban sophisticates who very rarely left their drawing rooms, or in these days, I imagine, their uh, their screens. So, um, yeah, I think there are comparisons between them. But, of course, um, George III had a burden very different to that of Prince Charles, and much more similar to that of Queen Elizabeth, which was that he became a monarch that was y- when he was young, uh, it was a role that he had to live with for, you know, had no choice for all his life. He had difficult family uh, relationships with some of his children, which again, I think is the case of the present monarch. Um, and just as the present monarch uh, presided over uh, the end of the British Empire and a period of very difficult transition often for uh, the United Kingdom, so for George III, these were not easy years. Uh, you know, there were serious challenges and when he goes into his final mental sort of twilight at that stage Britain hasn't won the Napoleonic Wars it is fighting alone against a power that has dominated the continent and when and at that particular time is in alliance with Russia so in many senses um, 1809, 1810, 1811 into the Napoleon's decision to attack Russia in the summer of 1812, or his rather, I should say, his launching of the invasion. Then these are periods which, for British history, were not too different from 1940. Um, and in some respects, they get even worse because although by this stage George III is in his twilight, the Americans in 1812 choose to join in on the side, as it were, of Napoleon um, by attacking Britain. Um, so I think the, the, uh, these, this kind of sense of national endurance, it's very much part of George's reign. And as you know, and I mentioned in the book, um, Subsequently, in, in Gilbert and Sullivan, they sing about good King George's golden days, and obviously everybody is aware that the only George that they can be talking about in that context uh, is George III. Nobody's going to suggest it's the others. In fact, paradoxically, um, when the time of the Congress of Vienna comes, and uh, which is 1814 to 15, and Britain um, you know, very much emerges as the the, the, the victorious power that's going to dominate the world oceans. Um, George, by that stage, is in a you know, is in a, a, a you know, it's in a twilight. But the thing to think about is that Britain's abilities to sustain itself, the one encapsulated by the victory at Trafalgar in 1805, although that is only one of a number of dramatic and famous victories, is in a part laid down by what we'd seen when we discussed earlier of George's visit to Portsmouth, um, that here was a king who had always um, been interested in the Navy. He also subsequently visits Plymouth to see the naval works there. He's somebody who is very committed. I mean, I mention in both my books, he takes a close personal interest in naval patronage and 
whom is appointed and promoted as a result of ability and bravery. Um, this is a man who works very hard and is very important to the integrity and continuity of British history. Mm. Well, Jeremy, it's always wonderful to catch up with you, and we really appreciate you taking the time this morning to, to, to share with us about your great new book, uh, George III, Majesty and Madness. Well, actually, can I just say, Crawford, yes. the one thing we haven't discussed is George is the last king of America, because he didn't have that <laughs> title. Uh, and you could say that, uh, in a way, the loyal colonies went on, and, and you know, only much of North America did not rebel, of course. But I do think that... Um, the American Revolution, whilst an understandable part of the American narrative, um, uh, A, I think it's based on a misunderstanding and misrepresentation, but we'll leave that to one side. Maybe we can discuss that in another program. But B, I think it has too much pushed into the understanding of George as a whole, and I don't think that's uh, particularly helpful. Um, and I think that the um, whilst you know you you yourself mentioned Hamilton, and I suspect in twenty years' time nobody will even have heard of the pro of the uh, the musical. But I do think that what that reflects is the way in which, in American popular culture, um, and indeed in popular culture around the world, and maybe now increasingly in Britain, um, images of the British past are held up for satire and obloquy, uh, which may well satisfy the sort of, you know, self-satisfied notion of present day. I was about to say something else, but this is a clean show um, about, of modern of modern audiences. Um, but I do not think it represents an understanding of the past. And, you know, I would hope that the listeners of this program, who are in inherently intelligent people interested in the world of books, I would hope they would be able to move beyond those kind of simplistic and silly images. And I should add as well, of course, that we're recording this in the morning of the 5th of November, when there's a certain zest to any UK discussion of American politics. Well, you should get me on to talk about that, because <laughs> as you probably know, I have written a history of America since the 60s called Altered States, and not my title, not my choice of title, as it were. The publisher irritated me by changing the title. I told them you could as much imagine that's about amoeba as about Americans, but, you know, publishers <laughs> don't pay much attention to authors. We know that. Um, and the very last thing is I always think that the one question that's often left out when people speak to authors is how do they come to write that particular book? You know, and so many authors are liars, and they make it sound as though there's some immutable process by which they obviously did it. In fact, this one, this shorter one, was sheer happenstance. If you look at the, the series, you will notice that the series for many uh, years, and this series has been coming out for years, had Amanda Foreman down to do George III. And essentially, Penguin, from what I can see, gave the the titles to people who'd already written Penguin books, and I've never uh, been so fortunate as to attract their interest in that respect. We can look at that statement in a whole host of ways. But anyway, what happened is I was contacted last year and asked if I would do it, and I said to them at once, "Somebody's let you down, haven't they?" Which they sort of rather sort of you know sort of bumped around and ignored, um, and I did it to just basically see if I could. I had a very, very short period of time to write it. 
um, because obviously they were concerned about this being, I think, one of the last to come out. And I did it as a challenge to myself, but also because I think my George III is very good, the big one, but I have to be aware of the fact that, although I'm sure all the listeners have already read it, most people don't rise to the challenge of reading a 200,000-worder. They might buy it and put it on their, on their bookshelves, but they don't actually read it. So I thought it was essential to write a shorter one and also to see how my interpretations had changed or hadn't changed during the period of a decade and a half. So part of it was to interest, I hope, readers, and I hope readers will uh, look at it, but part of it was also for the, for the way of trying to understand myself and why my interpretations might have changed and also to what effect. Um, and I do think it's very important if you write a book that you have a commitment to it. So that was the reason. But it was happenstance that led me to do it. And you often ask me, Crawford, uh, what else I am writing, which you're very entitled to do. Uh, and, and as you will be aware at the present moment, most of my books are going in different directions. I've been writing this series of national or regional histories for Little Brown. So I've done Italy, Spain, Portugal, and the Mediterranean. And I have as the next one coming out, the Caribbean, or for American listeners, the Caribbean. Um, and subsequently, I've got the Atlantic with that series. And I've also been doing a series on military history for a number of publishers. And I've just brought out a history of the Second World War in 100 maps for Little Brown or in America, Chicago, and a history of tank warfare for Indiana. So in a way, I'm trying, you know, who knows, the age of COVID is as much striking us as the age of American elections. You know, one might be dead within a few weeks, but what I'm trying to do is go out like a ship of the classic period of warfare with all guns firing. <laughs> well, Jeremy, thanks for that. And thanks for coming on today and, and, and talking about this really important new book, George III, Majesty and Madness, uh, just published by Alan Lane in 2020. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much, Crawford. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.